Hello and welcome to this AI Group podcast. I'm Julie Toth, the Chief Economist here at AI Group. Talking with me today is Dr Chris Waller of the US Federal Reserve Bank. Dr Waller is the Executive Vice President and Research Director of the Federal Reserve Bank of St Louis. Dr Waller attends the meetings of the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, in Washington DC with the bank's president, Dr Janet Yellen. He advises the bank's president on monetary policy and related matters and provides regular briefings on the US economy to the bank's board of directors and to other senior figures. Dr Waller is in Australia at present visiting his Australian counterparts in academia, the bureaucracy and in business. And we're very pleased to welcome Dr Waller to AI Group today as part of his Australian study tour. Dr Waller, can you please briefly explain the role of the Federal Reserve in the US economy and indeed the global economy for the benefit of our listeners who might not be familiar with it? Yes, the Federal Reserve runs monetary policy in the US and controls uh, interest rates to a large extent by our choices of monetary policy, much like the RBA does here in Australia. The size of the US economy being the largest economy in the world typically means that what the Federal Reserve does in terms of actions on interest rates tends to have global repercussions through our global financial markets and also in, impacts what other central banks and other countries do. Just on the, on the Reserve Bank, Dr. Waller, um, I understand the, the US Fed Reserve has a few more targets than the RBA does here. In, in Australia, our RBA has a mandate to target an interest rate of between 2 to 3% over the economic cycle, but I understand your system has a few more um, targets than that. Yes, the US Congress gave uh, a mandate to the Federal Reserve to pursue policies that maximize employment, generate price stability, and financial stability. So we interpret our mandate to be keeping unemployment close to its kind of long-run average, which is around 5%, to target inflation at uh, 2% and then to make sure there aren't excesses in the financial markets that could be dealt with using monetary policy. So we have to deal with all three of these objectives, which means at times we have to make trade-offs in how we want to uh, respond to, say, U.S. unemployment, low growth versus inflation. So given that you've got that range of targets, um, how do you see the, the US economy tracking in 2017 uh, relative to those measures? Yeah, so right now in the US, we are basically hitting almost all of those measures very closely. Uh, unemployment's 4.8%, our target is approximately 5%, so we're doing a little bit better. Uh, inflation is a little bit low. It's been low for about five years, but it's now tracking towards 2% and doesn't appear to be accelerating much beyond that. So in a sense, we're pretty much as close as we've been to hitting our goals now as we have been in the past 50 years. And so for the most part, we don't see in St. Louis, we don't see any severe things coming on the horizon that would lead to much deviation in 2017 from what we're seeing in the end of 2016. And what would be the, the biggest um, challenges that you see for businesses operating in the US right now? Uh, is, is it on the financial market side or labour market skill shortages? I'd say the biggest concern is just trying to see where fiscal policy is going to go in the coming year. Uh, we know that businesses are quite optimist, uh, optimistic in the US right now that uh, 
the current administration will put in policies that uh, are very business friendly. And we're seeing that in high equity prices, corporate profit forecast, and other things like that. Um, in the labor market, like I said, unemployment's very low. So in terms of expanding growth and um, looking for the appropriate labor to hire, uh, it's going to take a while to uh, get people to come off the sidelines in the U.S. labor force and come back into the labor force. Mm, so off, off the, the non-participation non -participation group and back probably to have active to come looking. In, yeah. And, and what about on the um, the trade side when we look at imports and exports? What's the outlook or the prognosis for U.S. trade flows and indeed for the, the trade agreements that the U.S. is part of? Well, as people are probably aware, the current administration has a very different outlook um, for trade agreements, uh, which is mainly potentially to shake them up, change them, uh, with the hope of turning the trade agreements more in the U.S.'s favor. Uh, we'll see how that all works out. The history of trade negotiations and agreements are that they take years. That these are not things that happen overnight. Uh, so it may be a long time before we see significant changes in trade agreements. Now on trade flows, various things that are being debated in the U.S. Congress now, such as a border adjustment tax, uh, or various other forms to favor exports over uh, imports. Uh, those are more serious and may come into play, but many estimates say that those things will be in some sense neutral on U.S. trade when they're done, other than just biasing production to be at home as opposed to abroad. So what, what are the, um, the, the tax um, arrangements that are being considered that, that might affect trade? I understand they're a little bit complex in terms of the, uh, the company tax arrangements that are being considered? Yeah, so the simplest way I try to understand it, and there, there are a lot of details that may or may not come into play, but the basic idea is if you were taking a, looking at things like a corporate profit tax, you would, your profits are revenues minus your cost, and normally you pay a tax on that. What the plan of a border tax is, is to break your revenues into ev revenues that you earn at home and revenues that you earn abroad. And if you sell things abroad, you get to deduct those revenues from your total revenues, which would lower your estimate of corporate profit. And in your expenses or costs, they want it broken down into costs incurred domestically at home versus imported goods that you use in production. And they would not allow you to deduct the cost of goods that are made abroad and brought home. So that would raise your corporate profit. So the incentives are to shift away from importing from abroad and shift towards exporting goods abroad. Uh, and so that's where the sense is that that would be a bias towards domestic production. Um, there's a lot of issues what that would do to the U.S. exchange rate with other countries. Um, by some estimates, this may not have a big effect on the U.S. trade deficit, but it does generate a bias towards home production away from foreign production. And would that be as well as the, the corporate tax reductions that are being proposed? Well, if it's just a cut on corporate profit taxes, then there's no differential treatment on where the costs are incurred or where the revenues are incurred. And then if you lowered the corporate profit tax, that's just a pure tax cut that would uh, benefit corporations and then that would allow for more profits to be handed back to shareholders. And in some sense, this is what we're seeing in the repricing of U.S. equities. I think the markets are pricing in a significant drop in the corporate uh, 
profit tax, that means bigger dividend payments, also some repatriation of profits from abroad if you cut the corporate tax rate. So I think that's what you're seeing in the U.S. equity market is just this repricing of corporate profit streams. And would all this apply to uh, foreign businesses that are operating in the U.S., or is it really just for for U.S. registered that's, corporations? That's a very that's a very good question. Um, the way that foreign firms are taxed depends on the foreign uh, country, and I think a lot of the way that taxes work in the foreign countries is revenue that you earn abroad, you pay your taxes wherever you do it, and we don't touch it. Mm. The U.S. Have, was one of the few countries in the world that taxes your profits no matter where you earn them. So if you built a factory in China, you took the output, sold it all in China, and made profits in China, you'd still have to pay U.S. income tax on it. Other countries, that revenue would never be touched for tax purposes at home. So that's one of the big differences. And again, I think there's a shift to kind of move uh, the tax base to um, destination based as opposed to anywhere in the world that it's uh, earned. And related to this whole question of you know where investment happens, where um, income is taxed, um, I understand that, that the US has got a similar problem to Australia in terms of the, the business investment cycle, that it really hasn't picked up since the GFC, been very, very flat. Um, can you explain a little bit about what's happening with business investment in the States uh, and you know what some of the drivers are that are going on there? Right. Since the end of the financial crisis, the U.S. Uh, GDP or income growth rate has been relatively low by historical standards. And when you break it down by components and say what is the what part of the components of household spending, business spending, government spending that's lagging historically, it's it's not household spending or the government. It's strictly business investment. So the big question is why aren't U.S. firms investing in uh, physical capital structures? and whatnot. Um, one of the claims just talking to business contacts is that a lot of it has to do with the uh, increasing amount of regulation and business decision when making business investments. And from that point of view, if the current administration were to sort of roll back a lot of regulations and red tape, we might see a recovery in U.S. investment. But you're right, this is a, a phenomenon that's occurring in other parts of the world, which means it may not be the regulatory argument. If it's a global phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon. It has nothing to do with just U.S. regulations uh, imposed during the Obama administration. So that, that's where people are questioning what is it that's leading people not to invest in risky capital investments but wanting to store wealth mainly in safe government liquid assets. So the, the, the risk aversion and flight Some, to safety right, is Flight still to safety, in. risk aversion still seems to be there in a large part of the world in the U.S. Do you think the, the Trump administration's proposal to increase infrastructure spending will help to fill some of this hole or help to kickstart business investment? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of general agreement across all parties in the U.S. that the U.S. public infrastructure is, if it's not too low in the quantity, it's definitely low in the quality and that there needs to be an overhaul of the U.S. infrastructure. So the, any policies from Congress on infrastructure will probably have broad support and would probably go through. The bigger question is should the public infrastructure be undertaken by the government or undertaken by the private sector with incentives to provide this public capital stock? Uh, and that's where the 
current administration has said they want to provide incentives for the private sector to provide the public infrastructure as opposed to having the government do it themselves. That means creating tax incentives um, to do this. Uh, and again, those mean that there's going to be some degree of tax losses, but the idea is to recoup those tax revenues later when the investments are put underway. Uh, but infrastructure spending in terms of the immediate impact on the U.S. economy, it'll be a long time before we see the impact. One, it just takes a long time for these projects to be put in, you know, shovel ready. Uh, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. And then the productivity effects of it tend to come years after the investment, um, often decades before we actually see the impact and the productivity numbers of, the, of a country. What, what sort of infrastructure uh, projects do you think would be the, the priority? Are we talking new roads and rail or ports, or is it more in the telecoms or energy space? Yeah, I think what you would see is, um, for example, in uh, many U.S., the U.S. electrical grid system is basically 100 years old. It definitely needs to be upgraded and replaced. The question is, what technology do you want to use? The technology we currently have, which is a line transmission system, particularly when you look at the revolution in battery technology that's happening, where you easily imagine in 10 years a home has a big battery pack made by Tesla hanging on their wall that powers their house through their solar-powered shingles. That, would, that just fundamentally changes the world in the way you want to think about uh, infrastructure. But I think, for example, a lot of uh, interest is in rebuilding American airports. There's been a lot of highway spending in the last eight years. It's not that there hasn't been any uh, highway spending. But I think it's more the, some of the transportation sector, the airline, airports, ports, uh, expanding capacity, um, electrical grids, uh, some of the other stuff, sewer and water, which are huge. I mean, these are really old systems that have been in place pretty much for 100 years. The question is whether you can get private sector firms to go in and run sewer systems, water systems in a way that doesn't require them to be treated like a public utility. Um, that's what we're going to find out. Okay, great. And finally, Dr. Waller, you are from the U.S. Fed, so I have to ask you, uh, you know, reserve rate up, down, no change? Well, I can tell you what the FOMC Survey of Economic <laughs> Projections states, which is the public document. Uh, the FOMC is projecting three hikes of our policy rate this year. The markets are projecting two hikes. Our own bank, my president uh, and I, are recommending we only pursue one. Um, there's been a disconnect between what the markets think and what the FOMC thinks for the last several years. So we'll come down to December and see who wins, whether it's three, two, or one. Thank you very much, Dr. Weller. All right, thank you very much for having me on.